Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we'll be talking about denials, delays, and deep discounts. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Heather Martin and Brian Cotton. Heather and Brian are both working at Cineos Health Consulting with me. We've together published a paper on denials, delays, and deep discounts in pharmaceutical launch. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Payers don't treat products very well when they launch. And that's what we're talking about next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Brian Cotton, Heather Martin, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Good morning, Jeff. Denials, delays, and deep discounts. We're talking about what? Denials and delays and deep discounts for what, by what? Heather, what's the state of the market that we're talking about? Well, today, I would say unlike maybe 10 or 15 years ago, You don't just get your drug approved by the FDA and then launch and expect immediate coverage, especially by large plans that will take time to review and decide whether or not you'll land on their national preferred formularies, for example. So when we say coverage, what do we mean? Well, when I think of coverage, it's not just getting onto formulary, but also that tier placement and having unencumbered access, especially to patients. So do you have to go through a step therapy or do something else before you can get access to medicine? That is really true coverage to have that unrestricted access. So unrestricted access is fantastic. Are we getting coverage at all at launch? As I recall, when I was talking to payers, say five years ago or even 10 years ago, that before a product was reviewed for their P&T committee, before a product was potentially on formulary, there was a time that they would think about whether or not they were going to put it on formulary and have some kind of coverage while they were making a decision. Has that changed? Yeah, Jeff, I think nowadays payers are using NDC blocks right out of the gate. NDC blocks? So for each unique drug and each unique NDC code, that is actually blocked at the pharmacy point of the sale for coverage by Mm -hmm. major payers. Nowadays, payers are exercising these NDC blocks at launch for new drugs while they wait to review and get these new products onto formulary. Nowadays, manufacturers should be worried about not only getting poor coverage, but getting really any coverage at all. The only way to get around that is maybe through medical necessity or through a medical exception process. So instead of being default covered and then reviewing to decide if you'll remain covered, they will default not cover your product and only in a special exception allow patients to access it. So that coverage at launch, that means that if I as a patient have been prescribed something by my doctor that's a new product, it's a new product, I've been waiting for it, it's prescribed, the doctor agrees that yes, I should have this product, I go to the pharmacy and present my copay card, I potentially I present my insurance card, and then what happens? After you present your prescription, you could even have a copay assistance card, you could have your PBM benefit card with you, the pharmacist will say that the product is not covered, you can obtain the product for a larger out-of-pocket cash price. So even though on paper I have coverage, I have insurance, I have decent insurance, maybe even good insurance, but nothing happens, nothing gets paid for by my insurance company. And the reason that it's not paid for is because the insurance company doesn't have it on formulary at all. It's, as Brian said, NDC blocked. So the national drug code, the NDC, that drug just doesn't exist for the insurance company's purposes. Do I have that right? I mean, the drug exists, let's say, on the shelf at the pharmacy, but as far as you having reimbursement coverage for it, that is what you lack in that scenario. And this might differ from payer to payer. So some payers may not have that NEC block. 
if you're lucky and you don't use a PBM such as say CVS or Optum, which take a ferociously long time to review products and get them onto formulary, you might not have that block. So it really depends on what coverage the patient is coming into the pharmacy point of sale with. Okay. And a PBM is one of these pharmacy benefit managers, these companies that manage these kinds of benefits for the drug that I want to pick up for other companies or for even other payers, employers. Okay. So how long does this last? I would say it lasts until review. That time frame to even get to review though could be upwards of six to 12 months. That is a waiting period. And then once the review happens, that decision could still be to not cover the product, in which case you may still have that same scenario you had when you walked up to the pharmacy right after the drug was approved. Right. And we're seeing from our research within 12 months from the launch of a new product, a new NME or 505B2 approval. NME. What is an NME? A new molecular entity. Okay. So a new drug, like a new drug that no one's ever seen before. There's a new product. It's a new compound. It's uh, something new. It's not just a new product or reformulation, a new form of a drug that already exists. It's literally a new molecule that has not been provided before. All right. So new molecular entities or NMEs. We're going to be talking about those a bit on today's program. NMEs are new drugs. And then the other one that you talked about was reformulation or a new dosage, and that's a 505B2 product. Those are ones that are not new molecular entities, but are older molecular entities, and they're with a new dosage. Or they're a reformulation, say, of an older dosage, where you've moved, say, from a pill to an orally disintegrating tablet or a nasal administration, something like that. Those things are treated differently by payers. Describe how those two different things are viewed by payers, just writ large. I'd say in general, Jeff, payers are more likely to favor covering NMEs over 505B2s. Some of the thought process behind it could be, here's an innovative new product that patients need to have access to because they never had it before. I think that sometimes there could be a perception that just by changing the form, it is not necessarily an advantageous or another product that is extremely necessary. I think that varies from molecule to molecule because let's say, for example, it's something that's needed for pediatrics and you make it liquid or chewable. That's definitely a scene with value. So it's probably a little bit nuanced from product to product. But in general, if a payer feels as though it's just a way to extend the life of a product or if it's more of a life cycle management thing from the originator manufacturer, that may be viewed differently than a new company that comes out with a new strength or a new form that's addressing a need in the market. I think another benefit when payers are looking at enemies is they don't yet know really how therapeutically relevant this is going to be for a patient. Maybe this drug will be highly beneficial to certain patient groups. They really haven't seen it in action yet. They have clinical trial data, but maybe not head-to-head data between two major products. So I think that there's still maybe more hope from payers when it comes to certain classes that this might bring some unique innovation and fill some unmet needs of patients. Whereas, as Heather said, for the 505B2s, many payers can see them as Me Too products But there are places where they really do add value, I think. I don't know if you've ever actually asked a payer this, but have you ever asked a payer? It's more convenient for the patient. What do you think about this? I have tried that question a couple of times. I think it also depends on the cost difference. I think we've left that off the table. So yes, if it's more convenient and they believe that patients will be more adherent and it's going to impact the value or the outcomes or the cost to the payer overall, then maybe that's a story to tell. But if something comes at a premium, as in a higher price to pay for that convenience, I have heard more skepticism from the payer community. I'll go beyond that, Heather. I've had 
payers in advisory boards outright laugh and say, we don't pay for convenience. And the laughter wasn't light laughter or nervous laughter. It was outright laughter that anybody would think that they would pay for convenience. They don't care. Definitely not worth that premium on price. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about. I think that there are probably other groups that would have a different share of voice that may be able to sway things one way or another, whether that's patient advocates or other types of groups. But in general, if something's seen as just a simple line extension, especially if you're just changing the strength and not even the dosage or the form or the route of administration, a lot of times that's not really met with a positive reaction. Now let's get to the paper. This is a study done over products that were approved in 2018. Describe what the heck the study was. What did we do? So Jeff, for this study, we looked at the largest published formularies for top U.S. payers in the commercial space as well as the Medicare space. All right. So commercial and Medicare, they both have different rules about what things that they might put on formulary and when. So we're looking at the top formularies of the largest payers in America. What are the largest payers? So that list includes CVS, ESI, United Healthcare, some of your major players there that you hear about. In the Medicare space, that includes Humana, Aetna, as well as Kaiser. CVS again, Silverscript. I think the only one we didn't mention was Cigna. And when we say ESI, we're saying Express Scripts. Even though we're mentioning these payers separately, probably in the time frame since when we've done a lot of this work, even till today, there's been more consolidation and some mergers in that area of the business. So these are now payers that are more correlated with one another. Okay. So we've got the largest payers in largest America. Largest PBMs, largest health insurance plans. The largest health insurance plans, the largest pharmacy benefit managers. And now we're looking to see whether or not they put the newest products that were approved in 2018 on formulary and when. So there's a year of putting products on formulary potentially or not putting products on formulary. What's the time frame that we look then to see whether or not they did what we would all hope they would do? Right, Jeff. So for all approvals within 2018, we look at the end of the year in December 2018 and see at that point on public-facing published formularies how many of these new molecular entity N505B2 approvals wound up on the largest published formularies within these organizations? The 2019 formularies. That's the only gap, right? It's about, this is the middle of 2019. At this point, Express Scripts has come out with their 2020 formulary. They're kind of almost forward-looking. So anything that has already been approved has had some time frame and opportunity to be included for the following year. Okay. At the end of a year, you're hoping that most of the next year is planned out. All right. We've got a year worth of drugs. How many drugs does that equal? Let's start with the new molecular entities. What are we talking about? This isn't five or 10. It actually was a banner year in 2018 with a lot of approvals. Well, there were 103 branded therapeutics approved by the FDA in 2018. So that 103 includes all reformulations and new molecular entities. How does that break down? Of these 103 new entities, 56 of these are new molecular entities and 47 are 505B2s. Okay. So a little bit over half are new, new, new products and a little bit under half are 505B2s. So now the question is, what happened? Did these products that were approved in 2018 actually make it onto the formulary by the beginning of 2019? And what did we find? Well, we found that by the beginning of 2019, less than 50% of both NMEs and 505B2s made it onto any published formulary for most payers. So the very best companies of these large national payers, the very best large national formulary of the largest national payers was basically an F, where fewer than 50% of new molecular entities or something close to that and 505B2s 
were in fact on formulary? What's the one that if I were a patient or if I were a pharmaceutical company, I'd want because they're the ones that are the most permissive, letting the most products on formulary, F though it is. Right. F though it is, Aetna actually let the most products on formulary in its commercial formulary, its commercial book of business. All right. So I want commercial book of business as opposed to Medicare, and I want Aetna. What's at the other end of the spectrum, the ones that are the worst of the worst for manufacturers and potentially for patients if what you're wanting is a new drug that's actually on formulary? The worst that we're actually seeing are the PBMs, large PBMs, CVS and Optum in their commercial books of business. CVS actually only placed two NMEs and zero of the 505B2 approvals on formulary by the end of the year in their public facing published formularies. I think, Heather, that we have a lot of clients that are launching either new molecular entities or 505B2s, and they anticipate often written into their business plans and investor presentations that we will have broad access and I can promote all day through access. I just need access. I don't even need good access. I just need access. Are they getting access at the largest of the payers in the entire nation? So if access just means being on formulary, in this case, no. If access means being on formulary and preferred, definitely no. Launch is tough. I guess that's the take-home that we've had from years of payer consolidations is that they've gotten very good at negotiating, and now they drag out the launch so that you just don't have formulary access at all. I see no pushback from either of you on that statement. (laughs) I, I mean, what happens is, if we want to talk about what we may or may not advise our clients to do, is we can figure out ways for them to deal with that time frame in which there will be denials, there will be non-coverage. There are probably some alternative strategies we can talk about on how you can manage the gap between when a patient has reimbursement for a product versus when they do not. But until they do, they will see significant out-of-pocket cost at the pharmacy and in the moment. Potentially the entire cost of the drug. Correct. Maybe even a little markup. Let's go to solutions just at the end and do one quick dive into what we found for Medicare, Part D. So we think usually about commercials being more open than Medicare, typically requiring a lower rebate than Medicare. Medicare tends to be a pretty cost-conscious driver of rebates, so they tend to ask more to get on formulary. But in return, we expect that there are statutes and rules that tend to mandate coverage for certain drugs. Does that play out. Well, Jeff, we do see across the Medicare payers we sampled, they are more uniform in their coverage decisions than, say, commercial payers. You don't see as big a spread between those that don't give access and those that do. However, even among these Medicare payers, we really are still seeing less than 50% of NMEs winding up on published formularies and less than 50% of 505B2s winding up on published formularies. So despite these regulations for coverage, we still see poor access within a year of launch. I think it makes sense when it comes to 505B2s especially, because the mandate around Medicare is that all patients have access to a product that will help to treat, let's say, a particular condition. If there already is a molecule, a product available, then that does perhaps shift the reason for Medicare to have a more mandated coverage of a product if there is an alternative available, especially if there is a cost difference. So we're still seeing an F is what I get as a take home. It's still an F, but there are fewer people that just don't show up for the test at all. CVS that had zero 
505B2s on their 2019 formulary from 2018, and two of over 50 new molecular entities in the same time period, that CVS still had some more coverage for the Part D side of the business. So you can get a little bit more on the Part D side of the business from Medicare. Last question, what do we do about it? Launch your coverage is, in fact, terrible. And that's the expectation. So I guess that's the first thing is expect launch your coverage to be really pretty bad for three, six or 12 months. What do we do to mitigate this as pharmaceutical companies? Well, you want to set the right expectations to investors and outwardly facing entities. I think that that's my first piece of advice. So that there's not a feeling that there will be automatic coverage and that you'll be able to, let's say, see a lot of scripts turn over and become product that's walking out of the door of the pharmacy all the time. I think setting realistic expectations is step one. I think that there are other ways to reduce patient out-of-pocket burden, and there are ways that pharmaceutical companies can assist patients more directly. And some of those methods may allow that patient to decide to go ahead and pay out-of-pocket for a new product. Such as, Brian? So Jeff, some of these programs include copay assistance strategies. These buy the patient's copay or out-of-pocket down at the point of sale. So when your patient walks in and has an NDC block on one of these new drugs that's not covered by a major formulary, you're paying down that out-of-pocket burden. The manufacturer is allowing that patient to take home that drug at a lower out-of-pocket cost and generate access. These access hurdles are challenging, but they're not impossible to overcome. Manufacturers need to be investing at launch to ensure that they're getting the access they need and driving volume. A lot of times, traditional copay cards or copay assistance even that word means that there was some sort of coverage, right? You had reimbursement and then you were given a copay amount, let's say $35 or something out of pocket that you had to pay. I think that there are other ways in which pharmaceutical companies can think about how do you deal with the uninsured or the non-covered patient? Do you provide something more like a cash discount card? Are you going to give them a special coupon? You can do a voucher program. You can even alternatively distribute the product directly to the patient for a cash price that you so determine is within their willingness to pay. And that is a very quick crash course on some of the things we can advise pharmaceutical companies to do. Okay, and then great, I think one more just to name it because we've seen it and it goes along the same lines, is a bridge program. One that is basically free drug while coverage decisions are being worked out. We're used to seeing these for say a couple of months where you get a couple of months of coverage and now we're seeing 12 months of coverage in some cases in highly competitive classes where the drug is free and the drug is being paid for by the manufacturer. So volumes built, script is built, share is built. The payers know that they're going to have to cover the drug because they see the volume there, but the profits on the drugs are in fact deeply negative. So that's another way to get there. That is a very specific economic and financial choice. So we just want to make sure that whatever program you go after, whether that is going to be steeply discounting, providing for a low cost cash price or bridge literal free product type of program, just to make sure that that makes sense financially for your organization. I think that's what I would have to say as an advisor. Well, thank you very much, Brian Cotton and Heather Martin for joining me on the Cineo South podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Jeff. If you'd like to hear more about denials, delays, and deep discounts, you can read our white paper that's published in Pharma Intelligence Informa, and we have a link to it in our show notes. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at 
If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.